0: I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. I just finished talking with Dan Dresner, professor of international politics at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. Now, stay with me because Dresner is most definitely not your parents' poli-sci professor. For one, you've got to follow him on Twitter. He's funny, topical, and as likely to tweet a goofy video as he is to include a scatterplot graph. He's also not above using a curse word every now and then. He also seems, on Twitter, like a guy you'd want to hang out with. For example, when he tweeted before the debate, I'm stocked up with the necessary provisions for debate night, are you? The accompanying image wasn't old Theodore White books on the making of the president, but instead was a photo with bottles of rum, scotch, vodka, and ibuprofen. And the scotch was blue label. Like I said, definitely a new age professor, and we talked about that. In fact, it turns out that in addition to foreign policy and international security agreements and global trade, Dresner thinks a lot about how technology lets him and others like him become an important and growing part of everyday political discussion. And if you listen to his analysis, you'll understand immediately why Dan's become a big player. But if you want to keep up with him, you better move quickly. In addition to teaching and tweeting seemingly nonstop. Dan's a regular contributor to the Washington Post's Post Everything blog. He's also written five books and is at work on number six. He's got a lot to say. Much of it's really funny. All is incredibly insightful. I really think you're going to like this conversation. But before we begin, some questions. Who will win the White House? What can we expect from the remaining debates? And what about the House and Senate? People who want to stay ahead of the curve turn to the Cook Political Report, and with good reason. For 30 years, the report has nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. CBS News' Bob Schieffer called it the Bible of American politics. Nate Silver noted, few political analysts have a longer track record of success than the tight-knit team that runs the Cook Political Report. Little wonder the New York Times called it, quote, a newsletter that both parties regard as authoritative. People who make it their business to know politics make it their business to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. Just go to cookpolitical.com slash politicalwire. That's cookpolitical.com slash politicalwire. You're kind of the new model for public policy and poli-sci professors, aren't you? I mean, does your dean see what you write in your Twitter feed, Dan? I mean, you you might risk getting your mouth washed out with soap every once in a while, don't you?
1: One of the perks of being a full professor is really I don't have to worry about what anyone thinks. Um, (laughs) You know, provided I don't uh, uh, abuse students or, you know, commit academic fraud, um, I can pretty much say what I want and not worry too much about the repercussions. You know, I, I, don't know Which you. Is, a, without question, liberating on Twitter. I, I, acknowledge that.
0: Yeah, it's pretty good on Twitter. And, and I mean, I don't, I don't know you, but my guess is that that did not come to you just upon, uh, securing tenure. My, my speculation is, <laughs> you know, if we could go back to the, you know, the, the 10 year old Dan Dresner or teenager, I mean, you probably were always like this. Is that the accusation um,
1: i 'm going to refuse to answer that question on the grounds that I, I might incriminate myself, uh, but yes, it would be safe to say that i've i 've uh, I've been perfectly free to articulate my uh, my views on particularly foreign policy and politics uh, for quite some time
0: well, uh, a political scientist who actually has a personality and connects with you know normal folks to the extent that uh, someone like me is a normal folk. Um, you know, just got to warn you. You know, you realize you're doing it wrong, don't you? I mean, you know, you're supposed to be uh, aloof and and you know, kind of off-putting and nose in the books. I and mean, you're not supposed to be accessible.
1: I would actually argue this has been one of the greatest benefits of sort of the the diffusion of, of social media and blogging technology, is that it actually opens a window into the the notion that uh, you know, political scientists like myself must be very stuffy and removed and and. You know, abstruse in our language. That you know, I'm hardly the only one uh, who does this. There are plenty of political scientists uh, who are engaging in similar ways, um, and in doing so, are also having a, an impact on how the public thinks about these things. In, in,
0: so, anyhow, you've uh, actually helped jump to you know one of the last questions I had for you. But uh, why don't we just take it up now? Um, do you know? Do you feel? I mean, I do. And, and do do you feel like there is a new age for for folks like you? I mean, it's kind of that intersection of public policy and political science and and more mainstream conversation I mean to your point you know John Sides who I mean he was a guest of ours mm-hmm. and and does the monkey cage of course and Austin Goolsbee to a certain extent Aaron Carroll I mean it, it it is kind of I mean and and it's interesting I mean your point of view I guess is that maybe it's the social media opportunity and 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 the chance to kind of uh, you know go direct to folks like me or or others and let your personality shine through, but it, it's a little bit of a golden age for uh, for folks like you. Do you would, would you agree?
1: I, I would agree. Um, I'm actually uh, finishing up a book called "The Ideas Industry" about the the changing marketplace of ideas for uh, foreign policy and, and public policy in the United States. And one of the arguments I make in that book is that in fact. Uh, we have communications technologies now that we simply didn't have 20 years ago. 20 years ago, if you were an academic and you wanted to influence public policy debates, you had to get past the gatekeepers of the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, uh, or the Washington Post. Um, now, obviously, those are still very valued venues, um, but there are a lot more ways in which you can uh, communicate political science ideas uh, to a broader public, and, and just as important is there's now a, a sort of group of writers that uh, are legitimately interested and want to act in some ways as go-betweens between scholarly research and the wider audience, and you know that explains the, the rise of sites like Vox or five thirty eight or uh, what have you.
0: I'm glad to know though that you you are still writing books and uh you know you're you're doing the official stuff as well but there there's there's really no reason why you know your profession i mean everything else is getting uh you know upended and and traditional gatekeepers are getting uh disintermediated so uh you know why shouldn't the the historic kind of you know whatever limits may have been placed on uh you know professors or the ability to to publish and get out there? Um, you know, to your point, no reason why uh, your profession shouldn't be uh, any different. And uh, those of us who who take in the stuff that you tweet and write and uh, talk about, uh, in in theory, we should we should be the beneficiaries of that. Um, so, oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, well, so, and, and now let's, let's prove it, uh, for the listening audience. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's get to the politics. Um, so, obviously, you know, I follow your Twitter feed and, uh, you know, I read your Washington Post piece, uh, today after the debate, uh, where you wrote, my main takeaway from tonight's debate, so I guess you wrote it last night, but, uh, I read it this morning, is that Donald Trump doesn't have the stamina to last four years as, as America's commander in chief. Um, I, I know who you felt won the debate. Um, but for Hillary, is winning over people like you enough? I, I want to get into a bit the demographics with you, but just kind of starting out, is it enough? I mean, she kind of had you, you know, already. I I think um, right was was winning over folks like you. Is is that enough, or did did she need to do more? And and did she do it?
1: Well, I think you could argue that the the demographics of the electorate are such that Donald Trump has you know a a sort of rabid core of supporters, um, and, and that plus the sort of traditional partisan leanings of a, of a lot of Americans means that he basically has 40 percent of the American voter, you know, voters in his pocket or the, the, the likely voters. Uh, that he he already has in terms of support. The problem that he has is that he can't seem to do much to get beyond that sort of hardcore. Um, that there might be voters who undecided who in the end will vote for him, but it doesn't seem like they've been drifting towards him uh, in in large numbers. Hillary Clinton has a slightly different problem, which is I think probably her uh, degree of support is wider. Um, you know she she does have a, the, a small lead in the the average of of most of the polls, but a lot of that support seems softer um, in the sense of Trump's voters really, really love Donald Trump. Um, Clinton's voters... Uh, some of them are certainly passionate uh, about Hillary Clinton, but a lot of them are voting for her either because she's not Trump or because she's the Democrat, and so therefore they'll go with that. Um, but you know, I, you'll know, you talk to a lot of people who say, well, I'm not a Hillary's biggest fan, but I'm going to vote for her, and so on and so forth. Because of that, the weakness of that support, it is easy for negative news shocks – like, let's say, Clinton seeming to faint after the 9-11 ceremonies or news stories coming out about her email scandals or what have you, it's easy for those voters to be turned off. Uh, It's not necessarily that they're going to vote for Trump. It might mean, though, that they're going to vote for a third-party candidate, or they might decide not to vote at all. And so the really important question for Clinton is, can she do things that gets that potential uh, coalition to decide – Okay, I'm going to vote for Hillary Clinton. I'm going to feel good about it um, because she's better than all the alternatives. And she's demonstrated that she can do the job. And so to that extent, last night's debate should have moved the needle somewhat. Not that it was going to cause people who otherwise were going to vote for Trump to vote for Clinton, but that it might have caused people who were otherwise disaffected about the election in general or might prefer a third party candidate or might have chosen not to vote to decide, okay, I will now vote for Hillary Clinton.
0: And so let's talk about that demographic and that that enthusiasm gap. And uh, I, I want to take advantage of your role as a professor. You know, obviously, in doing your job, you spend a lot of time with uh, so-called young voters. Um, big gap there. Why, why in terms of uh, enthusiasm, um, why, why hasn't Hillary Clinton caught on with them?
1: Well, I think to be fair, first of all, if you polled younger voters she does do overwhelmingly well uh far better with younger voters than she does with older demographics well but, but, in, um, the, but, really but the, in the
0: primary was, though i mean you know she
1: she absolutely
0: lost and even yes. now i mean but you know i, I you know she you, when you think about the obama coalition you think about the strength they had and the growth they had over bringing young voters i mean she just she may be doing well with them but she's she's not doing as well as obama and you've also seen uh, other things where where uh, young voters uh you know we're going towards uh, libertarian, going towards the Green Party. I mean, she may be doing better than than Donald Trump, or she may be doing, better, but but she's certainly not doing as well as one would would hope. And I guess to whatever extent in right. your interactions, it, what, what what do you see there? What?
1: So this depends on the baseline. I mean, you're right; she's not doing as well as Bernie Sanders or Barack Obama did. On the other hand, again, compared to older age demographics, she's actually doing pretty well there. But to answer your question, um. It's kind of hard to say. I mean, I'm teaching in a graduate school in international affairs, and unsurprisingly, the Americans that are in this uh, university are are pretty overwhelmingly in favor of of Hillary Clinton um, because whenever they hear Donald Trump talk about foreign policy, they get very, very queasy. That said, I I strongly suspect that that the reason why Clinton doesn't do as well – it's probably twofold the first is is that you can argue that younger Americans increasingly are disaffected by politics more generally um, that you know if you think about it that that a lot of these people did support barack obama's election and then his reelection and they might argue that Obama t- has turned out to be uh a centrist when it comes to a lot of foreign pol- or a lot of policy issues which pleases a centrist like me but might anger someone who's younger and has more ideologically um, Uh, extreme positions. The second part that I think, uh, the second difficulty that Clinton is running into is that you can argue for a variety of reasons that this is a change election, that, um, you know, that there's dissatisfaction with the state of the country, and this has, you know, persisted since 2008, and the one thing Hillary Clinton doesn't seem to represent is change because she's been a lifelong politician. She's been in the public eye for something like 20, you know, 30 years. Um, Donald Trump has been in in the eye for that long as well, but at least he doesn't represent a conventional politician. So, you know, Hillary Clinton is running about the best, you know, the uh, campaign of a traditional politician, one who is sort of racked up a long resume, one who talks about policy minutiae with extreme skill. And the question is, does that actually play well with voters who are, younger voters who want to see more radical change. And that's just not something that Hillary Clinton projects terribly well. Even when her policies might actually be significant shifts from the status quo, uh, it's not her style. Um, and so as a result, that you know doesn't necessarily play as well with younger voters.
0: And talk to me a little bit about, I mean, for somebody who, who focuses, as you do, on international affairs, on international politics, Um, I mean, we, we saw it even during the, the debate. I mean, you know, Hillary raised it and, and maybe it's except for Vladimir Putin. Um, global leaders are really worried about a Trump presidency. And, and Clinton, you took time during the debate last night, uh, to assure global leaders. I mean, she was, you know, Mm -hmm. she was kind of talking simultaneously to, uh, Uh, Voters, but also uh, folks around the world that the U.S. would keep its word on security treaties and agreements. Now, uh, on the one hand, this feels ridiculous. How could the idea of whether the U.S. will honor, say, its NATO commitments become a real question uh, in an American election 2016? Uh, On the other hand, it, it has. Um, and, you know, for a not insignificant portion of Americans, it, it resonates. So what's what's going on on, on that? And, and talk to me from from your, you know, kind of historical view of international politics and, and the way in international affairs and the, the role that it has played in the, you know, American voting. Um, why and how could this have political legs?
1: Well, it's interesting. I actually had a conference on this uh, about a year ago, and, and the common – you know, consensus among most of American politics people, Lynn Vavreck, who writes for, for The Upshot, was, was here, is that foreign policy usually doesn't play that significant a role um, in, uh, in general elections, that, that by and large other factors um, are considered to be far more important. This is particularly true since the end of the Cold War. Um, however, that said, there are two caveats to that that make it different this time around. The first is that if you actually listen to Donald Trump's rhetoric, Um, and Donald Trump's sort of issues that he pushes. What is striking is the degree to which they're almost all international in nature. So what is ailing the United States, according to Donald Trump? He seems to be making three arguments. The first is, is that it's illegal immigration. The second is that we're somehow getting screwed over by our trading partners. And the third is that the United States is spending too much on alliances like NATO and our alliances with Japan and South Korea. He actually doesn't have any domestic policy you know, criticisms that much, or when he does talk about domestic policy, he pretty much sounds like a standard Republican. The thing that makes him unusual is the foreign policy side of things. And so as a result, Trump, weirdly enough, has actually raised foreign policy as a far more important issue um, than I think it otherwise would have been in this election. The second thing that's driving it is that while voters might not care all that much about foreign policy relative to the economy or jobs or crime or what have you, they do still care a fair amount about who the commander in chief is and whether the commander in chief is, is reliable and i think there was a there was an nbc poll that came out last week that showed what were the greatest concerns that voters had about each of the candidates and when it came to clinton it was about her trustworthiness and the email scandal but when it came to trump it was about his temperament and his ability to be the commander in chief and so in that sense the moment that you talked about last night during the debate where she said i want to reassure you know our allies and so on and so forth was a relatively smart move by by Clinton because it makes her seem like the grown up in the in the debate in an area where even most Americans who otherwise don't think that much about foreign policy want a grown up in charge. Um, and similarly, I think that was also th- that that sort of dynamic was also at play. And I think what was Clinton's I mean it was clearly a canned line, but it was her best line in the debate where. Trump accused her of, of, you know, preparing so much for the debate, not not going out publicly. And Clinton's response was, so I believe Mr. Trump has accused me of preparing for this debate, which is true. You know what else? I've also been preparing for being president. Um, and, And the contrast with Trump was was painfully obvious, particularly as the debate wore on. So in that sense, what voters want to be sure about, and this has been a a line of attack that Clinton has been pushing since May when Trump secured the nomination, is you cannot trust this man to have control over the nuclear codes, which is a highly unusual argument. It is not one that has been made uh, essentially since Johnson ran against Goldwater in 1964. Um, And so in that sense, it's it's unusual, but with, with Trump, it seems to resonate.
0: But, and the, well, with Trump, it seems to resonate, but, but also, I mean, some of these criticisms, a lot of these criticisms, and, and, you know, I want to ask you about global trade as well. You know, there is, it feels like, a, a changing sentiment in, in the U.S. I mean, it, Trump is saying these things, but there is a portion of the electorate with whom it 's resonating around you know pulling back from uh, um, agreements and that sort of thing did, and and as well on on global trade, which i 'll get to in a second so you you just said though that you you know were had a conference on this about a year ago, were these themes emerging in that conference? did you see these ideas coming out, did people start to say, wait a minute, there's a, there, you know, there's a potential wedge opportunity here on, on international affairs, or was that part of the discussion, or, or has this surprised you?
1: Um, I think it surprised me a little bit. You have to remember this was uh, almost a year ago, so so Trump yeah. was still obviously leading, and he had participated in some of the debates. But the the general consensus among the people who were participating was that Trump was not actually going to get the nomination. Uh, so it was not it was less Trump specific. But I would say that, that basically the the point made about in in that conference was that by and large campaigns are traditionally wary about campaigning on foreign policy for two reasons. The first being uh, that it's uh, it's questionable whether voters care all that much about it. And the second is that foreign policy for campaigns is like a landmine, an unexploded landmine, and you never know what's going to happen. Um, and so it, it's not necessarily in a candidate's interest to make, you know, bold promises that they are then expected to actually carry out. One of the great myths about political campaigns is the notion that that, uh, candidates campaign and they make promises and they don't actually follow through on them. The surprising evidence is that candidates, when they make an explicit promise, usually try to do it. Um, they don't always succeed because of congressional roadblocks or what have you, but they do usually make concerted efforts. Doesn't always happen, but but you know something like more than three quarters of campaign promises wind up getting implemented. So as a result, candidates are usually traditionally risk averse in terms of making specific promises when it comes to foreign policy and again this is where trump stands out because among his you know obvious promises that he's made is this notion of building a wall along the border of mexico and reevaluating H- has he said that? Uh, our nato commitments H- H- has
0: he said that he's going to build a wall on the southern border of the united states i, I know i know it,
1: it's well actually it was funny because it didn't come up last night in the debate no it didn't uh, right. but yes he's, he's, been, he's been rather emphatic on that point i believe
0: okay i'll have to do better research
1: there you go. What about
0: what about global trade? Um are you surprised I mean Hillary Clinton cannot uh support NAFTA. I actually thought it was I, I thought she gave uh uh Trump an opening when she mentioned, you know, and, and under my you know, under, under President Clinton, you know, when my husband was in office, I think the economy was pretty good and Trump did jump on it and say, "Wait a minute, NAFTA, NAFTA, NAFTA." Uh and and it felt to me
1: like she may have <laughs> given him you know, a, a little opening, but but can you can you? I'm looking forward to the Saturday Night Live skit that just involves yeah. over someone saying NAFTA, 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 like Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Yeah,
0: yeah. Oh, that that would be good. Yeah, we'll send that. Uh, you're That'd right. Well, yeah, we'll send that into as long as NAFTA, we don't get,
1: NAFTA, NAFTA. Yeah, as long, yes. as
0: long as we don't get a broken nose from a football hitting us in in the course. There you of go. Course. Yes. Um, when did global trade? How, I know when because I know it's developed, and I know about the uh, you know the 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 equality gap and the inequality gap. I mean, it has been an issue. I mean, the Americans have lost their jobs. Oh, yeah. uh, I mean, it, it, it's real. Is it other... World, is it an alternative universe for you that now global trade is bad politics? I mean, I understand why it has occurred, but it, it absolutely goes against the last, what, 50, 100 years of, uh, you know, what, what politicians 150 are, what, years. 150 yeah. years. So I understand the why to a certain extent, although please feel free to, to help me understand it better. Um, but has it surprised you? Has it caught you off guard? Does it make, you know, and is there a way to, to treat Global trade in a positive way politically, or you, or is it the new third rail?
1: Um, this is an unusual election because of Trump, among other things, but the fact that you've got the Republican um, making such strong protectionist statements—it's not as unusual for the Democrat to to sound protectionist themes. Remember back in 2008, uh, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama were trading barbs over who was going to do a better job at renegotiating NAFTA, which actually, if Trump was smart, he would have brought that up, uh, since Clinton obviously didn't renegotiate it. Um, I I mean, I would say a few things in this. The first is, I would actually push back on the contention that uh, free trade is is now a dead-bang political loser. If you actually take a look at the polling on this, there hasn't been that much of an aggregate shift in in American attitudes about this. What there has been, and this is interesting, is a shift within the parties, which is Trump getting the nomination has genuinely caused Republicans to take a much more skeptical eye, cast a much more skeptical eye about um, our trade treaties. But what's interesting is is that it's been counteracted on the Democratic side by Democrats actually being far more enthusiastic about free trade than they used to be. Um, I think in some ways this doesn't have anything to do with the actual merits of the argument. It's about Trump saying one thing and, and that Turns on Republicans and turns off Democrats, um, but that said, I, I think what's going on is, to some extent, when you have a low growth environment, it becomes easier to talk about relative gains. To talk about, you know, not just uh, is trade a win-win arrangement, but rather is someone else winning more than I am, um, and that's in some ways the the theme that. Trump has been effective at at sounding. And as you point out, there is at least some economic evidence now, which there didn't used to be, that um, particularly the U.S. opening, not so much NAFTA. NAFTA had minimal effects on uh, the aggregate U.S. economy, but rather the U.S. opening to China did have severe effects. Um, It was still probably a net gain for the U.S. economy, but it did have serious distributional effects, and uh, distributional effects in the sense of those who lost their jobs as a result of the opening to China you know, never really recovered from that in a way that was not true about NAFTA in the 1990s and about previous rounds of trade liberalization before that. Um, And so that's the really, you know, interesting question, which is what do we do with that knowledge going forward? Um, And I think the other thing to realize, and again, this is where Trump's argument about trade is politically effective, but policy ignorant, which is to say that there's no doubt that trade has been one of the drivers. Of uh, the sort of rise in economic inequality, but there are there are plenty of other drivers as well. Among other things, Trump's notion that he's somehow going to bring manufacturing jobs back to the United States relies on this sort of myth that there actually are these huge supply of manufacturing jobs out there um, that can be brought back. And in truth, if you actually take a look at the sort of global uh, number of manufacturing jobs, it has gone down persistently for the last 20 years. And this doesn't have that much to do with trade. It has everything to do with automation, which is to say essentially jobs in the manufacturing sector are now going the way of jobs in the agricultural sector, which is you used to have a world where we had 80%, 90% farmers, and we don't have that anymore because, you know, farms are now essentially done on an industrial scale. Uh, similarly with manufacturing, the problem is, is that, you know, manufacturing is, the United States manufactures something like 50% more uh, goods than we did back in one thousand nine hundred and eighty u s manufacturing is perfectly healthy what 's not healthy is u s manufacturing jobs that has something to do with trade and it has a lot more to do with automation and are these issues
0: i mean can these become issues are these topics that we can have a real discussion on and and can help drive the politics or is does this stuff do, do you start to do we start to lose people do you is it too do you start to lose people politically when you start to try to to dive into this?
1: I would put it this way: there is a there is a bias in terms of political optics when you talk about trade, which is to say, you know, when you talk about what is trade effects on jobs, most economists will tell you the trade has no aggregate effect on jobs. That it, it certainly causes. Some jobs were created some jobs be destroyed, but overall the effect is not all that great. The problem is, is that when you talk about it in terms of politics, what Trump can do is talk about the carrier air conditioning plant that leaves um, the United States from Mexico. That is a clear narrative that anyone, regardless of the amount of economics that they know, can understand, which is a factory is moving to a place that produces with cheaper wages, therefore we are losing jobs. It becomes much harder to point to the, the, jobs created by trade. You can obviously point to exports, but those are usually in more recondite areas that are tougher to sort of make clear to the common, uh, common voter. And more importantly, very often the gains from trade are actually come from greater economic growth, which means they actually come from non-tradable sectors. So the, the link between trade and a job created is often more indirect than direct, and as a result is therefore less politically saleable
0: yeah it's it's very hard to connect those dots and and when he talks about uh the carrier jobs and going down to mexico and all of that it 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 is it's a it's a very uh it's a very gettable understandable uh narrative
1: right um, i i want to tap and in it's t- a jo- and that's a story that will always make the 11 o'clock local news in a way that a new plant opening or something like that will not because negative news always trumps positive news in that sense.
0: I want to tap into as well, uh, in addition to the uh, international politics side of you, the the political science uh, side of you, particularly around polling. Mm -hmm. um, And I don't know to what extent you kind of, you know, dive into or or look at methodologies of polling. And uh, I'm sure it's a class that at one point you had to take, but uh, I don't know to what extent you, um, you know, really kind of get in all that stuff um, but but i 'm sure you follow them, and obviously one of the most popular well known polls is is the five thirty eight poll but currently on some level you know there's there's almost an outlier aspect to it that while you know you 've got a lot of the major polls. Uh, putting Hillary ahead by, say, two to four points. Um, 538 is calling it a dead heat. And the other day, and it's now cast, and this, of course, was all before the, the debate. So, <laughs> you know, things are getting. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it, but the now cast said that the, if the election were held today, Trump would win. Again, to be really clear, this was before the debate. But do you, do, what do you have? What do you advise folks, you know, from the political science point of view, um, in, in terms of the science or methodology behind the polls? So many of the polls now obviously are a blending, they're an averaging, they are, uh, you know, trying to make determinations around, you know, the the probabilities in various areas, Um, and it's changed, it's changed hugely in the last uh, four, eight, you know, eight years, really. Um, What's your view around, uh, how how do you advise folks to to think about the polls and, and the science and methodology?
1: So I mean I would say there are two things going on. The first is is that what sites like five thirty eight or the New York Times Upshot um, or Real Clear Politics or, or Polster for the Huffington Post do, yep. which I think is which is laudable, is they aggregate polls. In other words, what they're they're not doing is saying this is the one poll that matters. Ignore the five other polls that say something else. Um, so what they do is they they are poll aggregators, and I think that's an extremely uh, sagacious, I guess, thing to do in the sense of not freaking out about individual outlier polls, which is what the media used to do and still does to a lesser extent. Um, so that part, I, I think, is extremely laudable. Um, and, I, and particularly 538 is very good at sort of getting under the hood about particular polls. That if you read their analyses of polls, you know, uh, 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 of particular polls, they will say, well, this one will lean Republican or this one leaned Democrat and why it does that, or this one has a, a good reputation in the state of Iowa, this one does not, and, and I think that part is useful. Uh, the part where I get a little bit uh, uh, wary, and, and the, my family, I would add, is, is are, are some of the biggest um, problems in this, my, my wife and my son do this, is that I think they tend to use 538 the way a lot of lay people use WebMD when they're not feeling well. Um, and so as a result, I think they do put somewhat greater faith in these kinds of sites, um, then perhaps they should, with the notion that these sites really represent, you know, genuine oracles uh, of the way the election is going to play out. When in fact, you know, very often, the you know, the election has certain dynamics that these things can't cover. So, for example, last week I wrote something in response to to Nate Silver, who was arguing that the election is really, really close, and we need to be freaking out, you know, about that fact. And I was saying it's not that I think Nate Silver is necessarily wrong in his calculation, particularly on the now cast, because the polls did show a tightening. But that, you know, what I talk about in terms of the, the overall dynamics of the election made me think that as the election tightens, what you wind up happening, what winds up happening is, is that voters who feel kind of ambivalent about Hillary Clinton but truly petrified of Donald Trump will, if they see the polls tightening, decide they're now going to vote. For Hillary, definitively, and not, you know, be wishy-washy about it. So therefore, uh, to use a political science term, the narrowing and then widening is almost an endogenous effect, which is the the polls tighten, that causes soft supporters of Hillary to decide, okay, I will actually vote for. Her. The polls widen again, the narrative becomes, oh. Clinton is running away with it, then those same voters are like, oh, then I don't really need to vote for Hillary, and then it suddenly starts to narrow again. Um, Now, that said, I I think they're an extremely valuable resource, but they're a valuable resource that um, can be over-relied upon, I guess would be the way to put it.
0: Yeah I, I hear you on the watching of those those numbers the way your family does I, you know we all look at them and uh you know you, you look at the the New York Times runs the upshot numbers continually right. and you know, you follow them almost like the temperature like you know what am I what should I wear today how hot is it let me check you know let me check the temperature uh and you check the upshot you know which you know is it at 69 uh 31 is it you know 1.0 is it was at 90 10 it, it it really it's almost like reading a a, a continual a real-time – it feels like or gets treated like a real-time thermometer, and I think there is a lot of – Oh,
1: I mean even better even better than those sites are the prediction markets, which literally are real-time. Yeah. You know, one of the things that was interesting last night was the ways in which it was being reported to the prediction markets as the debate was playing out were trending towards Clinton because people clearly thought that she had won the debate, um, which again is one of those things that's a valuable source of information because it's available at that moment. But you know, we truly won't know what the effect of that first debate is, despite all of the immediate polls saying that Clinton won it, um, for at least a week. And we also don't know how long-lasting it is. We don't know if this will be a permanent shift in, in support for Clinton or whether it'll die down after two weeks, much like Mitt Romney's first debate victory over Barack Obama wound up dying down after the first two weeks. Yeah.
0: And Dan, I, I really can't let you go without asking. I mean, we've talked a, about a lot of personalities today: Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, and, and Nate Silver, and uh, you know, you just mentioned Mitt Romney and, and others. Uh, but but the, the pertinent question: When did you meet Mel Brooks?
1: <laughs> I mean, okay. you, you put you put it in uh, your
0: Twitter. I mean, it's how you describe yourself. Yeah. It's one. Of, it's one of the four most important things about you, according to you. I I, I got to hear the story. Yes.
1: So you might be aware that I wrote a book uh, called Theories of International Politics and Zombies uh, that asks a very, very important question. What would different theories of international relations predict would happen if the dead should rise from the grave? Um, So this is a popular textbook, and it came out about five years ago, and it's done relatively well. Um, And trust me, this is connected to Mel Brooks. So one of the primary sources I used for that book is is an outstanding novel by Max Brooks called World War Z, which became a film that Brad Pitt starred in. So for a variety of reasons, I was actually invited to the movie premiere of World War Z in New York when it came out. Uh, and then I got to go to the after party. And at the after party, I bumped into Max, who I had known. We had, we had been at on, done a Comic-Con panel together. We'd done other sort of con panels together. So Max didn't know I was there. I, he didn't know I was going to be there. I didn't know he was going to be there. But uh, we were delighted to see each other. And as it turns out, Max Brooks is the son of Mel Brooks uh, and Ann Bancroft. Um, so Mel Brooks was at the after party so after I talked to Max and after I talked to Brad Pitt for a while and Catherine Keener who happened to be there Max took me over to meet with uh, his father and I got to sit for 10 minutes and talk with Mel Brooks uh, which is one of the highlights of my life he was just you know like the happiest 85-year-old you can possibly imagine, uh, you know, still incredibly funny. I, I remember telling him, "You must be so proud of your son that the, you know, the the book was such a success." And, and Mel Brooks, of course, then said, "Yeah, you know, I'm really proud. He doesn't come around and ask for money anymore. It's really good." <laughs> um, so just a great guy. Yeah, and,
0: and and I assume that you gave him a copy of your textbook and he he read it front to, front to back. I
1: did not. I would. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't bring the book with me to the after party. Unfortunately, See, that would be, that. And, but, and that would be uh, a great
0: blurb for the for the paperback. If you get a Mel Brooks blurb <laughs> for the paperback of that, that'll uh, that would really break break through. Um, Dan, I laughed,
1: I cried. It was better than the producers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Exactly. That'll uh, that'll get it on everyone's list. Uh, thank you. I guess the only other thing that I, I've been wondering is, uh, you, you you put out a tweet. I knew that you were uh, joking and there was tongue in cheek. But uh, um, are, are you in trouble at all with your wife? You, you mentioned uh, your wife and son. You tr- in trouble at all about uh, you know what you what you said you would uh, tell her to to go do if she interrupted you during the debate?
1: No, no, no. We we had talked about this. I, I actually said I think I'm going to have to watch this in the basement because I, I'm not going to be good company watching this debate. And she, and she completely understood, and, and I might add, was stressed out for, for slightly different reasons, but also obviously stressed out. And so uh, it, it went perfectly well. Okay, good.
0: Re- there was no re- violence in the Dresner House. Glad glad to know there's no violence. Okay. Uh, yes. Thank you. Thanks a lot for taking the time.
1: No problem. It was a lot of fun.
0: Well, that was my conversation with Dan Dresner. You've got to love a public policy professor who works a Brady Bunch reference into his analysis. And how nice is it to talk with someone who can so clearly discuss global policy and trade and international security and connect it all to the politics of the day. I bet his classes are a lot of fun, too. Anyhow, my great thanks to Dan for joining me and you for listening. I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations.